This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are going to resume our uh, talk about an axe murderer. Yes, part two of our American Horror Story Coven inspired episode. Yeah, I'm actually pretty glad that something else came up because as soon like the soon as Coven premiered, people were tweeting at us and writing on our Facebook and stuff saying, "Can you please, please, please do something about the history of the show?" And we were like, "Well, past hosts have already covered." The history like that is Madame in there LaLurie now. and right. uh, Marie Laveau. Yeah, like there are already episodes about that in the archive. And so I was sort of like, well, if they have something else we haven't talked about before, then sure. Well, and I uh, remember during the second season of the show, I got really excited when I found out they were going to uh, use some historical happenings to inspire things. But they kind of abandoned them or they changed them so much that it really wasn't worth Making the connection. Yeah. Well, and the second season of it was also so much more scattered in all of the different elements of things yeah. that, that were sort of disparate, weird things happening at the same time. <laughs> uh, this one is much more focused on New Orleans and horror in yeah. New Orleans. Uh, so in case you missed our intro in the last episode, uh, when they introduced the Act Man of New Orleans, and we have, when we're recording this, he has only appeared in one episode. We'll see what happens in how completely out of whack it gets in terms of history. I mean, we're already out of whack in terms of history with him. Uh, But the way they introduce that character is very rooted in reality Mm -hmm. and in an event that actually happened in New Orleans in the early 1900s. So we are picking up kind of in the middle of his crime spree uh, on March 10th of 1919, which is yet another incident of an attack. So because there had been this pause in attacks, the last one that we talked about was toward the uh, end-ish of 1918. Now we were getting to the early part of 1919. Um, the, the nation had kind of turned its eyes instead to the end of the fighting of World War I, although the war didn't formally end until later in the year. So the next axe attack took the city a little bit by surprise. 
This incident actually took place in Gretna, Louisiana, which is across the Mississippi River from uptown New Orleans. And at that point, it was kind of a, an immigrant suburb of New Orleans. Yeah. And it, it, Gretna is still there, but it's changed significantly, obviously. Um, and so uh, on March 10th of 1919, uh, Orlando Giordano, just in case anyone's curious, it is not Orlando. There is an I at the beginning. Uh heard screams from his neighbor's house and he went to render aid. And that is how he discovered the next, uh, Axeman's victims. And these were grocer Charles Cordomiglia and his wife and daughter. This is when I start to go, God, what do you, what do you have against grocers? <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. It's really at this point though, I think we're on grocer number three, right? Oh, that sounds correct. Um, that, that I kind of go, okay, this is a weird grocery store pattern. So when Orlando arrived, Charles was unconscious, and Rosie was cradling their two-year-old daughter, who had been killed by a blow to the back of the head. Rosie said the family had all been asleep in the same bed when the killer attacked them. And the attacker had once again entered through a chiseled-away door panel, had not taken anything of value, and had left a bloody axe behind. So while young Mary had died at the scene, her parents were both alive, although they both had serious skull fractures, and they were admitted to the hospital. When Rosie had recovered, she clearly named her attacker as her neighbor, Orlando Giordano. Both Orlando and his son, Frank, who were business rivals of the Cordomiglias, were arrested. Whether or not Charles corroborated her story is actually a matter of some debate. Uh, some accounts say that he challenged her version of the story, and others say that he actually accused the son, Frank Giordano. Uh, there's also a pretty significant discrepancy as to what exactly happened to Charles after all of these accusations took place. In some versions of the story, he divorced Rosie after the trial, and in others, he died of his wounds and didn't live to trial time. And some of the tellings of this story just seem to abandon Charles because it becomes much more about Rosie and her version of the story. And while I found the death record for their daughter, Mary, uh, in Louisiana's online government database of deaths, I did not find Charles's, so I couldn't confirm or negate any of those different timeline accounts of his death. I love that you were crawling through the death <laughs> database to try to like, pin that down. It's a sobering thing to crawl through. Yeah. Just to look at that many death records is... Uh, not the most uplifting way to spend your day, but it is super fascinating. Yeah. So even though Orlando was an older man, he was 69 years old, he was apparently unlikely to have been strong enough to pull off these murders. Um, and Frank was much too big to fit through the opening that the killer had made in the door. The Giordanos were found guilty based on Rose's testimony. The older received life in prison and the son got a death sentence. Uh, eventually, however, sometime down the road, uh, like a year later, Rosie actually confessed that she had falsely accused the Giordanos, uh, and thankfully before the death sentence had been carried out. So they were released, uh, and all counts against them eradicated from the record. Three days after this attack, on March 14th, 1919, the editor of the New Orleans Times-Picayune received a letter, which has become the most famous piece of the Axeman puzzle, and also will be familiar to people who watch American Horror Story. They printed this letter in its entirety, 
And here it is. Uh, this letter is dated hell, March 13th, 1919, so the day before the editor received it. And it says, esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get an axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. Signed, the Axeman. That is quite a note to dash off. It is. And if you imagine that there was lots of jazz playing in New New Orleans after this, that would be right. By all accounts, there was basically jazz everywhere. And lo and behold, there were no murders. Although there's always been some debate about whether the letter was truly from the Axeman or just a prank. Uh, Yeah, and I have to wonder, you know... Tracy is a site director, not quite the same thing as a lead editor on a newspaper. If you got like a bizarre warning like that, that was like, publish this and warn everyone. I don't even know how I would feel. I would call the police. Well, of course. And freak out a little bit. And I would probably have shaky hands handling the whole thing. I would freak out and call the police with my hand shaking. And while the next several months passed without incident, uh, and some began to believe that the Axeman had somehow been appeased or moved on. Unfortunately, the late summer saw a return of the familiar brutality. But we're going to pause for a moment before we get into those attacks and talk about our sponsor. 
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Okay, so now back to uh, the more serious subject of axe murders. Murdering grocers. Another Italian grocer is the next victim. Yeah. On August 10th, Steve Boca was attacked while he slept, and the assailant escaped into the night. And Boca made a full recovery, but he couldn't recall any details of the attack. Once again, there was a panel chiseled from the door, and the chisel was found next to the door, and the axe was left in the kitchen, and nothing was stolen. The next incident happened a little less than a month later, a few weeks later on September 3rd, uh, and Sarah Lauman was a 19-year-old woman who was living alone in New Orleans. And so she was attacked on September 3rd. Because the city had been kind of in the throes of this horrible series of attacks, some neighbors went to check on her because they knew she was a young woman alone. And that's when they discovered her unconscious uh, on her bed with several head wounds and teeth missing from a blow to the face. Like Steve Boca, she recovered, but she didn't have any memory of the assault. A bloody axe was found either outside the window or on the front lawn, depending on the source of the account. However, in the departure from most of the previous incidents attributed to the axe man, uh, there was not a chiseled door panel. It's believed that the assailant in this instance had come in through a window. And she also wasn't a grocer, was she? No. And not a man? No. So, again... We wonder. It it does call into question whether these should really all be grouped under the same killer or not, or the same attacker or not. Right. 
Next came in October of 1919, and this was the last known assault committed by the Axeman, or at least attributed to, to him. On the night of October 27th, after hearing noises in her husband's room, uh, the wife of Mike Pepitone hurried in to find a fleeing assailant and her husband's inert body. One of their six children summoned the police, who found an axe outside the back door and a panel chiseled away from the door. And Mrs. Pepitone had actually claimed that there were two large men in the house. So a little bit different uh, than any other accounts that we had had heard up to that point. Yeah, there's also some suspicion in the accounts of this because Mrs. Pepitone seemed very calm as she talked to the police about her husband's murder. Uh, yeah, she didn't seem particularly distraught. There is one version of the story that suggests that when the police got there, she basically was like, well, he was killed by the axe man and just very matter of fact about it. So which calls, you know, into question other suspicious things. Uh, and while that was the last of the murders that are attributed to the Axeman, there are still plenty of questions about the whole series of incidents. Yeah. One of the big questions is whether some previous murders were also the work of the Axeman. From January of 1911 to April of 1912, there was another large series of axe murders that claimed the lives of 49 victims in Louisiana and Texas. And in these cases, entire families were savagely killed in their beds. Uh, in one instance in early 1912, where a family of five had been slain, a note had been left behind with the words, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble, human five. It's sort of a weird, uh, bizarre note. Uh, and just as with the New Orleans killings, nothing was taken in any of these crime scenes. There was also another series of murders in 1911 that similarly targeted Italian grocers. There were three of the incidents, and all of them were unsolved. The idea that only Italian businessmen were being targeted caused some citizens to speculate that there was a mafia tie-in to the 1911 killings. So the speculation was that these victims had not made good on the protection arrangements that they had with organized crime. But according to a detective working on the Axeman crimes, uh, the mafia wouldn't really target women, but the Axeman clearly did that. Yeah, and children too. Um, so there, there are many people who really like the, uh, the mafia tie-in to the story and think that that's really the key to who the Axeman was, but there's that whole women and children thing that's problematic. So some discount it based exclusively on that. So uh, tying into the mafia hitman idea is another story that um, some dismisses an urban legend. And in this tale, a man named Joseph Mumphrey was shot and killed in December of 1920 in Los Angeles. And the killer was Mike Pepitone's widow. And this tale appears to have first surfaced in Robert Talent's book, Murder in New Orleans. And others uh, who were researching these stories jumped on this idea. And at some point, it was pointed out that Mumphrey was actually imprisoned during the gap between 1911 and 1918, which suggests that his incarceration and freedom fit the timeline pretty well. It doesn't match up perfectly. Uh, and Mumphrey had also been theorized as a mafia hitman. However... Uh, if you look at the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, in the early 2000s, a researcher named William Kingman was doing some digging, and he actually got a notification from the California State Registrar that there had been no record of a Joseph Mumphrey 
dying in the state during this time. So that sort of detracts it. And he, the author of the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, makes the argument that this whole thing had been a fabrication. Although I will say, having crawled through Louisiana death records, not all of these people that are in this and are pretty much accounted for in, in the newspaper show up in those death records either. So I I don't know. I, we know that at this point in time, things like that would fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Not everything was noted perfectly. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in, and I know you probably do, too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issue shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment, why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high, and how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday Americans. I hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of Next Question. Subscribe and listen every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. So in the last century, there have been numerous theories put forth about the Axeman's identity, But there's never been conclusive evidence for any of them. So this legend really lives on. Because of the inconsistencies in some of the attacks, it could easily be that there were multiple assailants involved, either working together or sort of mistakenly grouped under the same header of the Axeman. There's also the prospect that some of these killers, as we said earlier, were just copycats. But because there was some mediocre handling of evidence early on in these cases, uh, they, you know, presumably in the first instance, uh, with the Maggios and in, even in the second one, I, I don't know that the police were thinking serial killer, uh, fingerprinting had been available during this time, but they didn't really use it. So conclusive forensic evidence has really been lost to time at this point. There's also this pesky issue of pretty small openings in the doors that the Axeman seemed to pass through. Like if you imagine a door that has panels that you could knock out with a chisel, it's not a very big hole. No. Um, This has led some people to say that he was really a demon or other supernatural entity. Including him. Uh, Or whoever wrote the letter to the paper. And American Horror Story. (laughs) American Horror Story. Um yeah, that's uh, an interesting thing. I only found one instance where they mentioned specifically that they had to have gone through the door panel and it was not a case of them popping that open and then reaching up to unlock the door because all the doors were found still locked. Ah. But I only found that mentioned in one place, so I don't know how accurate that was. So here we go. We reach up and unlock it. And then we reach up and that's lock it back my, when we leave. That was my thinking. That's not conclusive one way or the other either. No. Uh, so... It's interesting because while the Axeman is not uh, a huge story, I think, in American serial killer mythology, it has come up a lot in various um, media. Ameri- yeah. American Horror Story may be the most recent fiction to use it for inspiration, but it's definitely not the first. Yeah. In, in 2010, cartoonist and illustrator Rick Geary published a horror comic about the Axeman as part of the uh, treasury of 20th century murder. And brief mention of him is also made in Chuck Palahniuk's book, Haunted, uh, which is a great read. I'm a huge fan of his. Yeah. Uh, and it's shown up in many other places as well. There have been bands that have been named albums after it and uh, songs based on it. There was actually a song written in, in 1919, a jazz song mm-hmm. inspired by the events. Yeah. 
I've read, you know, a, a lot about serial killers. When I first discovered the Internet and discovered that there were websites that had basically everything about every serial killer ever, like yeah. I remember spending a lot of time reading these serial killer stories, and I had not ever heard of this particular one uh, until American Horror Story. Yeah, uh, I had heard of it uh, primarily because of the Chuck Palahniuk book, and I was like, wait, what is that? And I happened to do a quick search and discovered that it was a real thing. Yeah, as soon as I told you, hey, people are asking us, can we talk about this? You were like, is that a real thing? Yeah. Yes. Real thing. Uh, yeah. So there's a uh, shockingly real thing and bizarre. And unfortunately, it is, even though it is not so far back, it's less than 100 years ago, there's still so much uh, story and lore that's grown around it that there are often, as we talked about in the Babushka Lady, like eyewitness accounts even aren't even aren't always accurate. Mm-hmm. So even at the time when people that were near the scene were saying things, fear was sort of, you know, making their stories embellish in certain ways. And we can't count on the accuracy of any of it. Yeah. Well, and when you think about like with today's forensic methods, it's still I mean, it's not a rare occurrence for somebody to be exonerated through DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. I it's amazing to me that anyone was ever identified and and, and correctly imprisoned. Yeah. Uh, before all of those forensic methods really existed and like evidence handling procedures and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, that was fingerprints were available, but they were not where they're at now. I think they were first used. I'm I'm completely doing this off the top of my head. Uh, I think the first case they were conclusively used in was in like 1911. Yeah. So be pretty new at this point. Yeah. Within within a decade of when they were being used for actual investigation and court cases and evidence. So you can understand why they would not have necessarily fingerprinted the scene. Mm-hmm. So that is the scoop on the Axeman of New Orleans. And already I can tell you that American Horror Story has diverged. Yeah. <laughs> because in their version, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to spoiler it in case anybody's waiting to vertically view the whole thing. Right. But it diverges pretty significantly. Well, the, and the letter is included in him passing through New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, on that night, wanting lots of jazz. And then it gets very different. In a hurry. Yeah. Well, and then that when we started getting the Axeman requests, I think that it's like, so I haven't watched last night's episode yet, <laughs> but apparently there's some kind of Axeman. So there you go. And now we'll go on to listener mail. So I have two bits. One is an actual email. One is just a very funny uh, message we got on Facebook. The first one is from Allison, and she says, Hello, Holly and Tracy. Greetings from Juneau, Alaska. I just finished listening to your podcast about improbably effective Holocaust rescuers, and I was pleasantly surprised when you mentioned Miss Irene Good Updike, as I feel she is often overlooked. Miss Updike came to my high school in Southern California to talk about her experiences during the war. While Ms. Opdyke did mention being captured by Russian soldiers, she mainly focused on her experience at the club and the villa, including becoming Major Rugemer's mistress. When a student asked why she became his mistress, I recall that Ms. Opdyke responded that she had more than her life to protect. There were many lives at stake. And although her talk lasted only one hour, it made quite an impression on me. Her talk was part of what inspired me to join the U.S. Coast Guard and to get my master's in public health, which I am now completing, in order to assist those in need. I've attached a copy of the brochure that was handed out by Ms. Opdyke to those who attended the talk at my high school, since I thought it might interest you. And it did. It's very cool. And it's neat to have. We always love when people write in where they have a, a direct connection to oh, a yeah. piece of history that we've talked about. And I know that she did do a lot of lectures and outreach, which is so cool. Love it. 
Uh, our second note comes from our listener, Russ, and he wrote to us on Facebook and he says, Hi, ladies. I love the podcast. You keep things informative yet light and fun. But the Babushka Lady podcast gave me some concern and suspicions. Okay, when I read that, I got a little scared. Yeah. But I was like, oh, this is going to be somebody that really studies the assassinations and they're going to yell at me for some reason. Well, and and I think you and I both, when we get an email or Facebook message or whatever that starts, <laughs> I really love the podcast, but... Uh, you or, always or get a little like, like, there's a bracing for impact <laughs> that happens. But Russ goes on to say, Holly mentioned a couple of times that she is, quote, not in the CIA. Which is exactly what she would say if she were in the CIA. Hmm, this may need to be looked at by the people at stuff they don't want you to know. Thanks for a show that makes my horrible commute much more tolerable and even educational. I don't know, Ben sits near me. He hasn't uh, raised any red flags. He does. You I'm all not. are on the same row. <laughs> and frequently late into the evening, it's Chattering basically with you, each other. the two of you <laughs> on that row. And then no one and then me. Yeah, it's like you would know if I were suspicious. I, I think I'm, I'm too loud and goofy to be... Or that could be the perfect cover. So if you would like to write to us with your suspicions that we are spies uh, or connections to history, you should do that. Uh, you can email us at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff or on Twitter at mistinhistory and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com on Tumblr. And you can visit us on Pinterest, where we are pinning many, many things, both related to our podcast directly and not. I often pin a lot of historical garments. Yeah, I think you and I both follow a lot of historical clothing boards. Sometimes what's there is really lovely. I know, it's dangerous, though, because then I want to make copies or things inspired by all of them. And I already have a list 18 miles long. And I want to watch you do that, I guess. <laughs> okay, you come over and hang out. Because I don't have time. Kitty's climbing all over you. Um... So if you want to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the word serial killer, which I mentioned in the last episode. But this time I'm going to mention a different article. It's not really an article. It's a quiz. It's the ultimate serial killers quiz, uh, which can be a fun diversion. And you can learn about serial killers and a great deal more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands 
plans and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tuman.